Good morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20, and we're going to look at verse 14. Exodus 20, verse 14. Uh, thanks for being here. If this is your first time here, uh, we're really, really glad that you're here. Welcome to Veritas, and uh, we pray that you feel welcome, that you feel uh, you know, a, a warm welcome from us here this morning. Um, if, if you would, if you would take a moment to fill out the Connect card. So that is uh, attached to your bulletin, got a little perforated edge on it. You can fill that out, put some information about yourself on there, and, and request more information about Veritas regarding uh, whether that be groups or, or hospitality or family ministry at our gatherings or... Um, or whatever else you might be interested in learning more about. Uh, in addition to that, on that Connect card, there is a little space for prayer requests. We would love that if you would just uh, let us know how we can be praying for you this week. We, we'd love to, to be able to pray for you. We count it an honor and a joy to be able to do that, whatever you feel you might need pray, prayer for. Uh, and then you can just drop... Um, one of those connect cards off, if you fill it out, tear it off, a little perforated edge, you can either drop it in this bucket right here or uh, in the little black box out on the welcome table, or you can give it to a leader if you like, uh, and, and we'll make sure to, to get in touch with you and, and get you connected with whatever, with whatever the Lord is leading you to, to get connected with. Um, in addition to that, uh, so this is inevitable, maybe you've been trying to avoid talking about this, but the election results are in right? Uh, the election results are in, and uh, it seems that Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States of America, and uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking with some of you about this and, and hearing about who you're planning to vote for and why, and, and it seems like uh, some of you did not want this to happen, and some of you might have wanted this to happen, and some of you don't really care, uh, but wherever you sit politically, wherever you are uh, politically speaking, here's a few things I want to exhort you in. Uh, number one, I want you to be sober-minded. I want you to be sober-minded regarding uh, our, our current events. First uh, Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, be, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So be sober-minded. I mean, if you've been on social media much this week, you, you might either be tempted to think that uh, either the, the sky is falling and our world is coming to an end, or that America, uh, Americans will finally get all their hopes and dreams and their vision of the good life delivered to them. Uh, I'm calling you to be sober-minded regarding our current events. Um, we, we know, as the people of God, that while Donald Trump may hold the highest office in our land, that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth, according to Revelation 1.5. Amen? Amen. Amen. And, and so, one day Jesus will fully reveal that this is true when he returns, and, and all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and Christ. Uh, and as John Piper says, at that time, all the presidents throughout American history will be a footnote, but the kingdom, the government of Jesus, will never end. It will increase always. And so think of our current circumstances in light of this. Think of our current circumstances in light of this. It, it, it matters. It, don't hear me say it doesn't matter. It matters who holds that position. It, it matters uh, if they uh, are a person of character. It matters if they uh, lead and govern with justice and, and, and righteousness. Uh, but we all know that Jesus has control and authority in this situation. He's working all things out for his glory and our good. And so remember that. Be sober-minded. 
Second, I want to I want to exhort you to pray for our governing authorities. That that means federal, state, local governing authorities. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so while we may not know what comes uh, in the coming months and, and, and years for our nation, we know the God who does. We know the God who, who knows exactly and exactly what's going to happen and has control and authority over what indeed happens. Uh, he is uh, the one who controls nations and governing authorities. Uh, he controls uh, the, the outcomes of elections, and, and the destiny of our nation lies entirely in his hand. And so, like you should have been doing for President Obama and all of our governing authorities, pray for wisdom, pray for guidance for our leaders, uh, pray for them to be people of character and to govern with justice and to lead well. And then thirdly, and this may be difficult for you, maybe, but we're called as the people of God to honor our governing authorities. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.17 uh, regarding uh, a, a, an emperor at that time who, who did not rule with justice, uh, I'll say, Peter writes, honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. So we're supposed to be a people that no matter what, no matter who sits in office, no matter where we sit politically, whether uh, President Obama be in the office or, or whether Secretary Clinton had, had ended up there or, uh, as it seems, President-elect Trump, we, we're called to honor them as our leaders uh, and governing authorities. That, that means... Let me just kind of unpack what it means to honor them. It means to speak well about them. Uh, it, it ne not necessarily to never disagree or to, to speak prophetically, uh, speak truth to power. We're called to do that, but to, but to speak well of them insofar as we can. It, it means to uh, believe the best about them, to think, you know, believe the best about their character, their motives, their desires. Uh, it, it, it means... Um, obeying them insofar as we're able to, uh, uh, to the point where it doesn't contradict the word of God or our consciences, we're, we're called to obey them. Listen, the, 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 the means by which the kingdom of God moves forward is not the means of this world. It, it doesn't move forward through hurling insults and through force. The kingdom of God moves forward through virtue and through justice and through service and through uh, honoring others. And even if the nation that we live in doesn't currently uh, embody that type of character and conviction, that's what we're called to do uh, as the people of God. We're, we're called to honor and serve and love and, and show mercy and virtue. And so we honor our governing authorities. Be sober-minded, pray for our nation's leaders, and honor them. Uh, and so, all right, now, in light of current events, we're going to do the same thing that we do every single week, and we're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to see what God has for us. And so if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to look at Exodus 20, verse 14. Let's listen with reverence and awe. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you, um, would you help us now as we open your word to receive from you? Uh, Lord, to, to, to submit to you. Um, Lord, to, to submit to and, and obey uh, your laws, but, but also to cling to mercy, to cling to Jesus, to cling to your grace, to believe your promises. Lord, to rest in, in that it truly is finished because Jesus said it's finished. 
Uh, we are justified. We, we stand no longer condemned, but declared to be righteous. We, we stand uh, as adopted children uh, because of what Jesus has done. So help us to believe that. Help us to receive that. Help us to rest in that this morning. Lord, but also, uh, would you guide our hearts according to your word? Would you help us to be people that obey you from, from a place of, of delight and, and, and no longer just duty, but delight, loving you, clinging to you, and knowing you as our good and gracious Father who cares about uh, the way that we live because uh, it's, it's dangerous for us to live outside of your will. Lord, help us to, to love you, to trust you, and to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a seat. All right, so... Usually you're supposed to start sermons with like a story that really grabs people's attention or, or maybe with some statistics to show that um, all of what we're talking about uh, this morning would be relevant and, and uh, applicable to your lives. But um, all I really have to do this morning is to tell you we're, we're going to talk about sex. We are going to talk about sex. Um, now, one of the reasons I, I believe that grabs our attention so quickly is, is because we live in and, and we even contribute to um, a, a sex-obsessed culture. Um, and I, I don't think that's something I really need to convince you of. Uh, sex is, is all over our television, movies, advertising, news, everything. And, and uh, I mean, in advertising, it's, it's been used to sell uh, fast food burgers on, on TV, just weird stuff weird stuff. Uh, it's been used to sell like uh, male body spray and soap. It's been used to, to sell just things like bottled water and cars and, and numerous other things, clothes. It's just weird, weird stuff. And in fact, David Murray claimed before a, a Senate subcommittee that the average American views sexual material over 10,000 times every year through movies, TV, the internet, and the like. Now really though, I, I think that's just a symptom of the, the big problem. I, I think that's just a symptom of the real problem. In the West, our hearts are so gripped by sex. Our, our hearts are so gripped, we're enslaved to it. That, that's the reason that, that those weird advertisements even work. Uh, they, they've put their finger right on what our hearts are so often so gripped by. And this is one of the reasons that we as the church must, must talk about sex, because we live in, and we even sometimes are, are hidden contributors to a sex-obsessed culture. But we also have to address the, the, the Word of God. We also have to address sex according to the Word of God, because the Bible talks about sex. The Bible talks about sex. The Bible and its authors, they were by no means obsessed with sex the way that our culture is, but it regularly addresses sex because sex is God's idea, and he intends that we use it in, in the ways that he tells us to. Uh, as Stanley Hauerwas says, I love this, he says, a God who won't tell you what to do with your pots and pans and genitals isn't worth worshiping. And I happen to believe that's true. Because God is the creator of all things and he's the Lord of all things, he gives us commandments and, and guidelines according to his word on, on how we're su supposed to approach uh, sex. And so it's addressed by the law and the prophets. It's addressed by Jesus and the apostles and the, in the New Testament. And it's, it's addressed right here in the Ten Commandments. So we're going to dig in and see what the Lord has for us in the Sixth Commandment. We see here that God created sex as a good gift and that he invites us from misusing it to finding freedom in Christ. Okay, and so we're just going to walk through this outline uh, this morning. God's gift, man's misuse, and true freedom. God's gift, man's misuse, and true freedom. Uh, now, to get a good idea of what this commandment is, is really getting at here in the Ten Commandments and why it's important, we need to firstly understand that sex belongs to God. 
Okay, sex belongs to God. He's the one that created sex. It's his idea. He gave it to humanity as a gift, and, and that's why he's the one that gets to define it for us and give us commands concerning how to, how to rightly use it. Uh, you know, back in Genesis 1 and 2, we, we see uh, the creation narrative. And here we see uh, God create heaven and earth and that uh, he fills the earth with plant life and animal life and, and beauty and, and, and that over and over again he creates and then he steps back and he says, it is good. What I've created is good. It's blessed. It's, it's wonderful. And then he creates man and he says, it is very good. And then in Genesis 2, we see something very interesting. Before the fall of man into sin and death, before brokenness enters the world, God says something interesting. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Something is not good, and that is that, that something is that Adam is alone. And so God creates Eve, and he presents Eve to Adam. And Adam is just rocked. Like, he's totally in love with her, and he actually writes her a love song. He writes our love song, and it's, it's the first song recorded in the Bible in Genesis 2.23, and it wouldn't show up in Top 40 CCM today. It's a love song. He sings, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses writes in the next verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And now part of what that holding fast and, and cling to becoming one flesh means giving of oneself sexually. Uh, that, that's not all that it means, but that's according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, that, that's part of what it means. It's, 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 uh, sex is one of the ways that a man and a woman share in their union uh, in marriage. It's, it's seen as a kind of closing the deal or making it official or and even continuing to do it as a renewing their commitment to one another. It serves as a picture of their union, a, a sign of it, similar to how baptism, the Lord's Supper, serve as signs of our union with Christ. And this is what I want you to see, okay? That sex is God's idea. Sex is God's idea. This is his design, his good gift. You know, as, as Matt Chandler says, it's not as if God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and Satan was just over here forming a little penis in the dirt. That's not what happened. God created sex. It's something that comes from the mind of God himself. This is intentional. This is intentional. He created it, and it's good. He designed sexual intercourse. He designed that the pleasure, the pleasure that is experienced therein. Uh, he designed the intimacy and binding together of souls that results in it. He designed that a man and a woman would delight in each other's bodies uh, within the covenant of marriage. Sex is good. It's a good gift. It's a good and gracious gift from our creator and redeemer. And that's why it's insane to me that several leaders in church history have, have thought of sex as just like being necessary for procreation. Uh, and, and some, even leaders we would praise for their, their courage and sacrifice for the gospel, have been guilty of saying such asinine things like that, that sex is, is a necessary evil and that uh, married couples should be ashamed of their sexuality. Uh, that, that's not the way that the Bible speaks about sex. That's more influenced by Plato and asceticism than it is the Bible. The, the Bible speaks very differently about sex. Uh, the Bible speaks about sex not as a necessary evil, not as something to be ashamed of, but as something to celebrate. 
uh, that not only is sex at, seen to, is, is supposed to be seen as useful for procreation, but actually a holy and precious and valuable gift from our Creator. It's to be enjoyed and celebrated within marriage. God designed it that a man should hold fast to, leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and that they should become one flesh. And so God is not a prude, even if his, his people sometimes are. And C.S. Lewis kind of captures this wonderfully in Mere Christianity. He writes, There's no use in trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life in us. He's speaking of the Lord's Supper there. We may think it rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if, uh, as if Christianity talked, taught that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself took on a human body, and that some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. So listen, God created and highly values our bodies and our sexuality. These are created by God. It's, it's part of his plan and his good design. God, therefore, then calls us to entrust him, to, to trust him with our bodies and our sexuality. He calls us to, to trust him with our bodies and our sexuality, to, to, to put our trust in him and trust him with these things. That's what he's calling us to in the seventh commandment here, to trust him and to adhere to his good design for sex. Now, if God designed sex and it's a good gift, what did he design it for? Uh, and I think there are a number of reasons given in the Bible, but we're going to walk through just a few. Uh, for one, God designed sex for the purpose of joy in marriage. Um, listen to what Solomon says when giving instructions to his son in, in Proverbs 5, starting with verse 15. This gets pretty spicy. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of waters in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now listen to this. Let your fountain be blessed. He's saying, let your sexual satisfaction be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful dove. It's kind of a poetic way of speaking of her beauty. And then he gets really spicy. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Did you get that? Be, be intoxicated with, be filled, be drunk with joy in the wife of your youth. Uh, delight in her body. Let her body, let her breasts fill you with delight at all times. In other words, Solomon is saying, son, have great sex with your wife and have it often. And so here's the application for those of you that are married in this room. Have great sex and have it often with your spouse. That's, that's the application here. Enjoy it. It's, it's not only not sinful for you to do so, it's actually a command. It's actually good for you to do so. It's, it's actually good for you to enjoy sex with your spouse. That's what Proverbs 5 is telling us, let alone the entire book of Song of Solomon. Uh, the, the Proverbs 5 tells us, and, and, and also part of the seventh commandment tells us, uh, when, we look, when we look at the seventh commandment using the negative positive rule that we talked about last week briefly, uh, we, we see that in this command, married couples are called to devote yourselves to enjoying such intimacy with one another. 
Husbands, you're, you're called to pursue and love your wives. Wives, allow yourselves to be pursued and wooed by your husbands. Be filled with joy and delight in one another. That's what you're called to do in the seventh commandment. Another reason God gives the gift of sex is that it, it expresses and deepens intimacy within the covenant of marriage. It expresses and deepens intimacy within the covenant of marriage. Uh, Tim Keller actually calls sex covenant cement. It, it, it acts like super glue within marriage. It binds together two souls in, in such intimacy and closeness. And this is one reason why, for, uh, for one, that, that the Apostle Paul actually commands married couples to have sex in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and 5. He writes, The husband should give to, her, give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive one another. So it deepens, it secures the relationship. And this is also why adultery is forbidden in the seventh commandment. Not because sex is bad, because it's uh, such a powerful force for good. To, to do this outside of the covenant of marriage is, is dangerous because you're sharing part of yourself with someone that, that should only be shared with someone that's fully committed to you and you're fully committed to them. And sex in that kind of relationship just continues to deepen the intimacy and secures the covenant that you have with one another. It deepens the commitment. It makes for a joyful and intimate marriage. It's a beautiful picture of the language uh, used in the Bible that the married couple are one flesh. It's a vivid illustration of that. It's an expression of that, but it's also an enjoyment of it and a, and a securing of it. Another reason that sex is given is it's a shadow of our union with Christ. It's a shadow of our union with Christ. Uh, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. He quotes Genesis 2 and verse 31 here, saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we just read that in Genesis. But then he says this about uh, th that particular verse in, in Ephesians 5.32. He says, the mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I am saying that this mystery refers to Christ and the church. And so you see the, the oneness, the intimacy, the, the union that a man and woman, woman experience in marriage and, and sex within marriage, it's ultimately pointing to the greater reality of, the, the, of that of Christ and his church. Uh, that, that's one of the biggest reasons why the church is so firm about our views of marriage and sexuality, because it's a gospel issue for us. This is why we don't follow the cultural tides or the situational ethics of our age, because we believe that God had a plan before heaven and earth were created, that Christ would come and purchase his church and make us one with himself, and that marriage and sex are ultimately pointing to that very story. That's, that's what we believe. The, the, the story in which Christ lays down his life to serve his church, and the church lovingly responds and receives his life-giving service. That's the end for which marriage and sexuality exist, to signify our greater cosmic reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those are a few reasons why God has given us sex. And there are more, too. Uh, you can think about uh, sex as, as comfort in a time of mourning with David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. You can think about uh, Paul talking about sex within marriage as protection from sexual temptation and sexual immorality in, in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, and, and there are many others. But there's an overwhelming amount of evidence uh, in the Bible that sex is a good gift from God uh, for humanity. And because sex is such a weighty and good gift, he calls us to steward it well. To, to use sex for the purposes he's given it and not to use it outside of the intended purposes for which he gives it. And what we see here in the seventh commandment is that we have misused and abused the gift of sex. We have not honored uh, this, this God-given design for it. 
And so remember with me, in in our first sermon uh, of the series, we talked about how each commandment gives us four C's. Each commandment uh, communicates something about God, uh, confronts a particular sin. Uh, Each commandment uh, comforts us with the promise of the new covenant, and each uh, command calls us to a particular obedience. And and, in this particular point, we're going to look at how this commandment confronts man's misuse of sex. The, The commandment, this commandment confronts our misuse of the gift of sex. And, and we've done this in a number of ways, haven't we? we? We've done this in a number of ways, but we'll start with the most obvious way in the seventh commandment that it's misused. First, God's good gift of sex is misused in adultery. Now, what is adultery? Adultery, put very simply, is unfaithfulness in marriage. It's, it's sexual intercourse with someone other than your spouse. And the, the reason it's confronted is because it breaks the bond of the covenant of marriage, which is supposed to be held in high esteem by us. It, it's supposed to be your most protected and binding relationship marriages. Doug Wilson actually says, a man who will betray his wife will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family, and God hates it. So because this is the case, there's no sexual sin greater than that of adultery. Uh, there, there's no uh, sexual sin that, that, that hurts and causes pain like the sin of adultery. It's, it breaks a promise uh, made to your spouse before God and before friends and family. There's, there's no sin, sexual sin, that causes more damage and pain than this does. But then also the sin uh, that this uh, command confronts expands out further. Uh, we talked about the negative positive rule last week about how um, every command put negatively also has a, a positive side to it, uh, commanding us to, to um, obey a particular positive command. Uh, but there's also another rule of interpretation that while we've been following it, we haven't explicitly addressed it yet, and that's called the rule of categories. The rule of categories. Each command in the Ten Commandments stand for more than just the particular sin they address, um, but the whole category of sins associated with the commandment. It addresses not just the sin specifically mentioned, but all the sins that lead up to it, what we might call lesser sins. Uh, And and this is why last week we looked at the commandment to not murder as also prohibiting uh, violence and hatred and unrighteous anger and verbal abuse. Uh, And the same is true of this commandment. It doesn't just confront the sin of adultery, but all the sins leading up to adultery and all the sins in the same category. Sins uh, forbidden within this commandment would be uh, even sins like allowing yourself and your spouse to grow apart spiritually and emotionally, sexually, physically. Sins like flirting and having inappropriate uh, intimacy with someone other than your spouse. Um, the, The reality is no one falls into adultery on accident. There are things that lead up to this. It doesn't just happen in an instant. There are things leading up to this, like inappropriate conversations and sharing information about oneself that should only be kept between spouses. Another sin um, confronted in this commandment is is really any sex outside of marriage. Any sex outside of the confines of marriage is a violation of the seventh commandment. Uh, Now, I know that this is one reason why many people believe Christians to be prudes when it comes to sex, right? Uh, we're, we're believed to be prudes because we, we believe that sex is only meant to be enjoyed within marriage. But I want to suggest to you that we believe that because we have such a high view of what sex is. We, we do not believe that sex is just some sort of cheap, animalistic, primary urge, and, and it's not merely a physical act. It's a deeply intimate act, and it's a soulful thing. Sex is a soulful thing. 
Remember, this is why we looked at sex as covenant cement. Uh, to, To have sex with someone is to give of yourself so intimately and deeply that your souls blend together. And because sex is such a good and, and holy and powerful and intimate thing, it's only safe for it to take place within a relationship where the other person says, I'm all in. I, I'm not going anywhere. I'll never leave you no matter what. I will legally bind myself to you. I'm so committed to you. In other words, it's, it's only meant for those who have entered into the covenant of marriage. And what is a covenant? I know that that's not like a very common word used today. Some have even said that we need to use like updated language, like contractual relationship. But that still doesn't quite capture it. That that doesn't quite capture what a covenant is. You see, a, a contractual relationship can still be somewhat consumeristic. And that's a large part, that's a large problem of how we approach sex is, is we approach sex as consumers rather than givers. A contractual relationship can still say, I'm in as long as this benefits me. But a a covenant relationship says, I'm in this to serve you and to lift you up. A contractual relationship can still say, my desires, my wants, my needs are the most important thing to me. They need to be met or I'm out. But a a covenant relationship says, your needs, your desires are more important than my own. I, I put you before myself. A contractual relationship can still say, I'm in as long as the circumstances and my feelings are ideal. Uh, but a covenant relationship says, I'm in hell or high water, no matter what comes, I'm with you. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. That's what a covenant relationship says. And that's the only type of relationship where sex can be what it was designed to be in the first place. As C.S. Lewis has said, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong with sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate the pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things up and spitting them out again. And so sex outside of marriage is a misuse of this good gift. Another sin confronted here is the sin of lust. Jesus actually addresses this in in the commandment, uh, addresses this commandment in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so to look at a man or a woman and to imagine the sexual possibilities is a violation of this commandment. To to look at another person and see them as a means to the end that we be sexually gratified is prohibited here. And, And I know we can so easily fool ourselves into thinking that this is a victimless sin, that lust is a victimless sin. We we typically have a high tolerance of these kind of inward sins as long as they don't manifest themselves outwardly. But that couldn't be further from the truth. That couldn't be further from the truth. The, the, the sin of lust is fatal for you. The, the sin of lust will lead you to sin against others. And, and, and most importantly, the sin of lust is an offense against God, our Creator. 
It, it, it ends up uh, being fatal for you because it, it's like a cancer. It grows and it spreads and it infects your mind. It ends up costing you money and relationships and freedom. It, it's enslaving. It poisons your thoughts about other image bearers. And it leads you to sin against others because you begin to see others as existing solely for you and your sexual gratification, but they don't. They're made in the image of God. They're, they're made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, not to glorify you and be enjoyed by you. They're image bearers of our triune God. And most importantly, it's an offense to God. Even if no one else knows the, the lustful intent of your heart, God knows it and he hates it. John Calvin says of the seventh commandment that it continually drives us to return to the nature of God, realizing that he is not an earthly lawgiver who only forbids the external act while permitting us to indulge evil affections. For God has no desire to be served with the eye, nor is he like us. Men are satisfied when they cannot perceive their faults, but God who fathoms our hearts sees the truth. He not merely wanted to restrain our bodies in his law, but above all, considered our souls. Consequently, let us note that God has not simply forbidden the act that would in effect violate marriage or break it, but he has forbidden all lasciviousness and wicked intentions. And that is why our Lord Jesus says that when a man looks upon a woman with lustful intent, he is an adulterer in God's eyes. Although he is not guilty according to human laws and cannot be chastised for having acted promiscuously, nevertheless, in God's sight, he is already condemned as having transgressed this commandment here. So lust is forbidden in the seventh commandment. Now listen to me. I know that this is a particularly pervasive and powerful sin that has gripped many, many hearts and minds. I know that if the, the statistics are true, that one in two men in here and one in five women in here are struggling uh, currently with pornography. I, I, I know that, that talking about this could be provoking deep conviction or maybe even shame in your hearts. And so what I want to invite you to is to find true freedom in Christ. You know, there's actually a very tragic but hopeful story in the Bible. Uh, we read Psalm 51 earlier. And the, the story leading up to Psalm 51 tells us uh, about sin in David's life and how the, the sin of lust ultimately leads to adultery in his life and, and, and a host of other sins. And King David, okay, he's, he's the king of Israel. He's, he's the most powerful man in Israel, one of the most important characters in, in the Bible. He's, he, he led in Israel during some of their most prosperous and, and righteous years. He wrote many of the Psalms in, in the book of Psalms. And many stories point to him being a virtuous, uh, humble man. And the Bible even calls him the man after God's own heart. But in this particular story, we see him powerfully overcome by lust and sexual sin in his heart. The story in 2 Samuel 12 starts out by telling us that in the springtime of the year, the kings were supposed to be off at war at this time, but instead he sends off his, off his army and, and he remains at home, not going with them. And one evening he decides to go out onto the roof. He, he decides to go up there, take a walk, and, and from his roof he sees a beautiful, gorgeous woman not too far away bathing on her roof. 
And, you know, it's, it's not just that he sees her. That wouldn't be an issue. But this glance turns into a glare. And, and he, he starts to ogle this woman, staring at her, imagining what it would be like to be with her. And, and, and looking at her with lustful intent, looking at her as an object for his sexual gratification. And that should have been enough for him to stop right there. It should have been enough for him to stop. He's being overcome by sin and, and, and to repent. But instead, David sins uh, and, and, and asks about the woman. And he's told, you know, is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And if it wasn't enough before, this, this should have done it. Bathsheba is married. She's entered into this covenant with Uriah, who's off fighting as a soldier. In your army, she's not available. But instead, David sins for her, and she comes, and they sleep together. And afterwards, she goes home, and then later sins for him to let him know that she's conceived. She's, she's pregnant. And from there ensues a great cover-up, just making it worse, in which we see David lying, being deceitful, ultimately having Uriah killed. And by the end of it, he breaks pretty much all of the Ten Commandments. But God so graciously does not leave David in his sin and in his unrepentance. God sends Nathan, he's a preacher, and he confronts David's sin He tells him about the judgment of God, and he calls David to repentance. And by God's grace, David repents. He cries out for mercy. And thankfully for our sake, he he put them into lyrics in Psalm 51. We read it earlier, but I want to read this again. Let's let's listen to these words. Listen to what he writes. I I want, if you're struggling under the weight of sexual sin, I want these words to be your words. I want this to be your prayer. I, I want you to pray through this this week. Make this your prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me, Lord, with the hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So what does he do? He casts himself on the God of grace and love and forgiveness. And what does God do? God does what he does with every sinner who repents and casts themselves on his mercy, cry out for his mercy. He lavishes unmerited, even demerited love and kindness and grace on David. He forgives him, giving him freedom from the penalty of his sin. And he also empowers him by his spirit to be free from the the power of sin. And he's promised in Christ Jesus to to do the same for everyone in this room who repents and turns away from their sin.
Friends, you, you can be free through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. You can have true freedom if you cast yourself on him and repent. And that's what I invite us all to do here this morning, to turn from our sins, to trust Jesus. You know, that, that doesn't merely mean trying hard to do better. That, that doesn't mean striking a deal with God. God, will you forgive me? If you do, I will never look at porn again. That, that, that doesn't mean that, that you're putting some sort of software on your computer or phone, although that might be helpful. It means setting your affections on Christ instead of sexual fulfillment. It means looking to Christ to satisfy your heart instead of uh, sex or, or lust. It means finding intimacy, the intimacy you so desire in your union with Christ rather than a mere imitation of it. It means looking to him for refuge in the difficulties of life. It means looking to him as the foundation of everlasting, the fountain of everlasting joy. It means looking to him to find freedom rather than porn and lust and sexual sin, which enslaves and kills. Don't just stop looking at porn. Fix your gaze on Jesus. Don't just flee from sexual immorality. Run to Jesus. That's where freedom is found, in Jesus alone and nowhere else. Look to him and find freedom. I want to close with the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Healing balm to our souls right now. He says, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven and I assure you of pardon. Let's pray together.